This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we review the field of comparative and international education for 2019. With me for the last show of this year are Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, co-editors of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. In our conversation reviewing this year, we touch on many topics, including the rise of global populism, the power of youth, and the impending climate crisis. The end of the second decade of the 21st century was a watershed year in many respects. What were the big events and ideas, and where are we headed in 2020? Susan and Roger also make a big announcement at the end of the show, so please stay tuned. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge, and Roger Dale is emeritus professor of education at the University of Bristol. I spoke with them last week. Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. It's uh, great to be here. 2019, and actually, we're poised on the eve of an election that I do somehow remember recording a Fresh Ed broadcast with you uh, almost immediately after the Brexit vote. It was days after the Brexit vote, and maybe in a few more days we'll know the end of what's actually going to happen with Brexit. And Roger, welcome back to Fresh Head as well. No, we'll never know what the end of this is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to say that this is our fourth year in a row doing this end-of-the-year show. It's always great to have you both on to reflect back on the year. And I must say, 2019 seemed to be a really intense and in many ways crazy year with so many things that have happened both in and outside of education. Uh, And I think there's a lot of intellectual work that has to happen now to think through what on earth we just lived through. But I guess the big thing for me is populism. You know, there's protests in Hong Kong and in Chile. There's right-wing populist governments in many parts of the world, uh, and perhaps increasingly so. How on earth do we make sense of populism? And what would it mean for, say, your journal, globalization, societies, and education, and just education generally speaking? Well, I think you're absolutely right um, that populism almost, I mean, it's been a debate, it seems to me, in academic circles since, you know, Trump, Brexit, uh, Bolsonaro, for example, in Brazil more recently, and so on. And it, and, and we've got its opposite. We've actually got, uh, interestingly, a kind of a mobilisation of a, uh, of a youth group. But if we take populism, um, across many conferences, there are lively debates on populism. Is it ideology? Is it discourse? Is it strategy or, or what? And so on. But what I think hasn't really um, grabbed the attention of the education world much is, and I say that on the basis of almost no panels on populism at the CIES conference this year, um, which I, in San Francisco, which I found incredibly surprising, having been in other conferences, let's say politics, where there were many, many panels. And we could either say, well, in fact, education's got nothing to do with this, or we can actually say, are we not asking the right questions? And my own view, in fact, our journal's just got a, a, a special issue that will be coming through, uh, so globalisation, societies and education um, coming through, where we're actually posing um, some questions around you know, the stalling of social mobility, because populism is feeding off, it seems to me, a sense of 
having left being left behind in the stakes in society and one of the key means at least a, a promise um, a, a sense of you know meritocracy was always there to encourage you along um, to think that it was possible to you know, have degrees of social mobility but we have you know concentrations of here in the UK they call them you know hot spots you know degrees of social mobility people doing well, good jobs and so on, and others that they've described as cold spots. So you get these concentrations of you know, disadvantage, poor quality schooling, sense of hopelessness, um, intergenerational um, poverty, jobs and that kind of stuff. And we see the Brexit vote map onto that. Um, a book that came out in 2017 by uh, Bovinson Willey, and they actually talk about, um, you can see this pattern of this great divide, um, what they call the education um, kind of segmentalism or you know, segmentation that's happening between those who seem to have done well out of neoliberalism, managed to get ahead, and those who've actually been completely left behind. And we can see this in the OECD statistics. They begin in 2007-8, you know, pointing to the fact that we can see these divides opening up. Um, I think the global competences that the OECD has developed is a, a, an effort to you know, think about how you might close those big divides between populations left behind and those. But it's the left behind who feel resentful um, of their loss in status, loss in terms of their material circumstances, because we can see that there have been uh, very significant uh, losses in terms of their uh, incomes, and it's the kind of thing that Piketty was actually picking up on. Mm-hmm. So it feeds populism. Uh, it wow. feeds yeah, the Trumps of this world who say, you the left behind and me, um, you know, uh, us, we're, we know who the culprit is and they would actually point to the educated classes in the cities and in the university cities and so on. This liberal elite that uh, believes in meritocracy even though it might not exist in reality. Roger, what do you say to this, you know, this rise of populism and what it might mean for globalization and what it might mean for education research? Well, I think it it changes largely because Trump is perceived to be driving it or enabling it or or pushing it. And if we compare back, not very far back, if we, well, we can compare back to what happened in Seattle. What was that? That was a big populist demonstration, but didn't eventually get very far. The same with Occupy. Occupy is probably the best stroke worst example. Because when we're talking about uh, as it were, Trump-driven populism, it's a different kind of thing. It is not as the earlier ones were, and probably students, rebellion-type ones were. It, it is not driven from below by, the, by Occupy, for instance. It is actually driven by Trump, indulging the previously forgotten, etc. Though he's not very good at describing who they are. But I think that there is that. And... And it, it, it is also, in, in the Trump version, it is cocking a snook at the elite and especially the intellectuals. We don't want these bloody clever people around. I'm cleverer than you are. I'm the cleverest man in the world. We don't want those. So I think it is, takes a different sort of form. 
but I suspect it takes a different sort of form in different places. For instance, does the mass entry into the British Labour Party following the election of Corbyn, making it the biggest political party in the world, I think, you don't hear very much of that now. That may be because of the British press, but you don't hear very much of that as, as some kind of populist movement. Coming back to the education question, I mean, it, 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 we shouldn't be surprised, it seems to me, that the way education systems have been driven, you know, global comp- competitiveness, you know, uh, you know, up and down, up and down the system from, you know, the top to the bottom, you know, channeling it into the individual that you've got to be the competitive in- individual here. Um, the obvious outcome of that is that, you know, you have to have losers. That kind of way of organising what I've described as vertical vision, you know, we see the world vertically and, and, and across the piece and everything that happens, you know, in schools and the way it's organised, uh, in, uh, you know, who's the best teacher or not, you know, t- top to the bottom. And it's almost in the air that we breathe this kind of vertical vision of the world. But, you know, pull it open and look at it exactly what it is and it's about generating winners and losers and losers at some point are going to feel resentful particularly when there's degrees of materiality around that they feel looked down upon and that in fact making ends meet living um, from food banks in the UK this is a significant population of families um, having to do that that has to be an outcome at least education is partly, it's not fully to blame for this, but it plays, it's, it's an, a culprit in the production of these inequalities. What's quite amazing when I look back on 2019, a lot of the sort of books on economic thinking have really challenged a lot of these sort of, you know, taken for granted notions of neoclassical economics, which underpin a lot of what you're saying, Susan. And so, you know, I think of books like The Economist's Last Hour or Bullshit Jobs written by David Graeber, or even Thomas Piketty has a new book that came out in French this year called Capital and Ideology, and I think it'll be translated in English early next year. And it just seems like there's this intellectual movement that really has come to a fore this year to challenge a lot of the way we think of economies and people in those economies. You're absolutely right. And I've uh, also been in conferences where, you know, people are doing um, corpus uh, analyses of, you know, journals where many of the uh, uh, economic journals, they, you know, vary into modelling and and so neoclassical economics, modelling and so on, uh, that have a very kind of tight hold on what can get produced and so on, that there'd been kind of movements along the edges. Um, I noted, for example, the Nobel Award winners uh, this year, whose um, whose work on, um, to some extent, it's behavioural economics. I think there's a new kind of economics out there, behavioural economics. We see this in, let's say, nudge units here in the UK. Um, if you want things to happen, what you do is you nudge now, there's some interesting, uh, th- th- there are some interesting kind of interventions into these debates that over time economists might have described, you know, uh, the free hand of the market organising societies and some interesting articles coming out at the moment, um, journals like Economy and Society, talking about the economists now being designers of society. Now, I think that's an interesting one to watch because mm-hmm. it seems to me that the uh, Nobel 
award winners. Um, Duflo and Kramer and that's Henry. right. That's the, 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 the random control trials. That's that's right. Yeah. Um, and who are actually doing what they would describe as a new kind of development economics experiments. Um, now, we might have all kinds of reservations around these experiments, and in fact, many of them were in the area of education, um, mm. you know, raising questions about, is it the case that, in fact, children don't learn because you've got poor teachers and so on? So they're working with certain kinds of um, assumptions there. Um, so economics, it seems to me, is in part reacted to some accusations about, you know, that they, they really did both produce the 2008 crisis in a sense because of the policies that were being driven, but they also couldn't and didn't predict it either. Mm. And so economics is shifting off in the direction of, I'd say, this new kind of experimental economics, but behavioural economics is absolutely in there. Um, the problem, I would think, though, with that is you know, a, a, an economist is actually got to focus on economy still, and they maybe are taking into account worlds that are potentially perhaps more social than they might have in the past. But I would probably, as a sociologist, want to push them a lot further on that. Um, for me, it's not okay still to describe, you know, unfortunate social facts as spillovers which is typically what economists are actually doing, you know, um, because in fact they do actually want to think about uh, economics as, as kind of somehow having its very separate set of dynamics to um, the societies in which they're embedded. Yeah, I, th I think there's a, a different kind of populism. There, there is a, a popular economics text which are both accessible and critical of the economics prof profession. There are a lot of them around in the bookshops mm. and they are extremely well reviewed and, and um, I, I would think they represent some kind of threat mm. to the economics profession. But how they will, how they, the economics profession in, in the shape of, of uh, OECD will respond to this is quite different. <laughs> I can't see them doing that when you look at the um, PISA reports and so on. This brings up an interesting, you know, issue. There is a lot of intellectual work going on in really interesting and fascinating areas, such as, you know, challenging a lot of neoclassical economy, thinking about populism or whatever it is in, in new ways. But, you know, does it actually get into organizations like the OECD or the World Bank? Like, where are the intellectual spaces in the world of education today where you're seeing this live debate around ideas or does that just not happen anymore we could do a bit more re-reading of some of the archives let's say of the oecd okay i was very taken with the fact that um in some of the preliminary uh, framings and reports and things like that that were going into the development of the OECD's Global Competence Framework, which eventually emerged in its final form in 2018 and was part of the PISA data collection. Now, in the very early versions and coming out of really a naming from some of the divisions within the OECD, you know, big concerns around social inequalities, um, big concerns around growth and has growth, you know, GDPism and so on reached its limits. Could there not be a discussion around degrowth, etc.? 
Um, funnily enough, by the time it made its final cut, uh, degrowth had kind of disappeared from there. But what, what the degrowth work has done is connect back with some very long-standing debates that have been had in the OECD, Alexander King and others, whose work on the club of the development of the, the the club of Rome report, for example, you know, the development model for the West uh, is is going to is exhausting itself, and would, one would need to look at a different way of organising the economy. I feel that, in fact, um, and that's thinking forward and setting agendas, uh, we've, we've allowed ourselves as education researchers to be kind of slightly distracted by, you know, PISA and some easy readings and so on. And our journals actually commissioned a, a special issue asking for re-readings. You know, can we go back and look at the historical archives and maybe uncover some of the struggles, you know, between the degrowth movement inside um, or the GDPism kind of questions um, and how did they where did they sit um, some more recent interviews for example have begun begun to uncover those and you can see them actually in the archives to kind of make more visible the contestation inside institutions and not you know the critiques that emerge when they produce their reports so obviously another topic that I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, is this issue of the climate crisis. It seems like 2019 was the year of discursive change from climate change to climate crisis or climate rebellion, extinction, crisis, chaos, whatever it is. People like Greta Thunberg have sort of propelled this issue on the national, an international stage. And, you know, I, it's almost like nature has come back and it's been the year of nature taking over humanity in many ways from the, the various weather patterns uh, that we've experienced all over the world um, and just the changing climate generally. So how do we make sense of the climate crisis, which links into some of, you know, these big protest movements like Extinction Rebellion? How do we make sense of this and how does it relate to education? I think it's very interesting that I've been reading about this political ecology stuff for two or three years now, uh, and it's very interesting to operate. It's largely neo-Marxist anthropologists who are doing this, and brilliant stuff. A marvellous book by a man called Malm, um, and, uh, which is selling very well. But it, I think because the, the, the upsurge is a populist upsurge, the Thunberg, etc. This is a populist upturn. She's picked up by this, and she's driving it from there. And that's not where uh, necessarily the uh, Marxist anthropologists and so on are starting it from. They're starting it. They go back. I mean, they are doing economic anthropology on, for instance, the history of coal, if you like. This is the start for them. This is the start. Mm. This is global. And what happens to coal? And it, and it goes on and on. And, and very interesting stuff. Um, and I think it's important to try to expand that stuff because we get no commentary on this. Mm. We get no commentary on, uh, in education at all, on ecology. Oh, no. no, well, there are always green teachers who are doing this. But um, the, there's no systematic addressing yeah. So thinking of it in terms of the way in which education and maybe schooling in particular has, you know, historically speaking, been and contributed to what we now today call the climate crisis in a way. 
and how that sort of worked from a political economic perspective. Is that what you're sort of, that's the, what might be needed or is missing currently, Roger? There does seem to be a gap, quite a big gap, between the political ecologists, if you like, and, 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 and anthropologists, and practitioners in schools who are still doing the same kind of doing good type thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Roger's right. I mean, the response is at one level somewhat a liberal guilt. You know, can you, you know, you perhaps use plastics differently or those kinds of yeah. things, and maybe that's important. But in a way, it doesn't really dis- radically disrupt the sets of assumptions that we constantly are making every day, or the things that we take for granted about the way in which our lives can and should work. Now, one of the things that I've been doing, because I've been focused on the global competences, is looking across, let's say, what do schools think that they're doing when they're looking at things like um, globalisation, global competences, uh, digitalisation, and so on. And you'll find that they'll do things around under environmentalism, sustainability, those kinds of issues. But Roger is correct. What we're not linking it to are the bigger kind of development models. Okay, uh, that GDPism, as it were, you know, growth at any cost. I mean, that's a, that's a construction. That's a that's a a, a way of thinking about uh, an economic mm. development model that we don't actually have to have at all. So schools are doing, it seems to me, little bits, but not much. Yeah, right. I was in Tokyo for one of the climate crisis protests, and I saw a lot of signs that said, you know, get rid of plastics, no plastic bags. And it, it seemed very superficial in a way. You know, it's, it's yes, that's an issue, but it's not really this underlying issue. And I think I saw one sign that just said, end capitalism. And it, I thought to myself, that's probably more the issue that needs to, to be talked about. Yeah, this is a good start. I mean, I wouldn't want to knock it too much. I would Mm. want to say I think the thing that's extraordinary Mm. is the extent to which young people have come out and put, you know, the next generation on notice. You know, how dare you, says Greta Thunberg, Mm. about, you know, our future. So in in a sense, perhaps what we could and should be doing is thinking about the way in which young people are actively looking to take charge of their future. You know, Chile was the first example in the 2006 or thereabouts where the penguins, and the description of them as penguins is, a, is because they're in their uniforms, you know, white, black and white uniforms and so on, out there and marching. And they have been the generation through the universities that have driven um, political campaigns, um, have ended up in the parliament as well, and there's an effort to try and unpick globalisation at the or privatisation um, at the current time within Chile. Uh, not easy because there are you know large you know vested interests, corporations, and so on. Some of them actually owned by key people as part of the state infrastructures who are not going to let go of you know those things um, easily and lightly. So perhaps we can be cynical about superficiality, but maybe it's a starting point that we that mm. educators need to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we also need to recognise that there is an element, we shouldn't mock it, but there is a, quite a strong element of virtue signalling through, mm. through the plastics and so on. Um, yeah. And I don't think we should knock it, but recognise it for probably what it is. 
Yeah, right, right. I mean, it did seem like 2019 was, in a way, the year of the youth as well. You know, it almost seems like this generational struggle became very, very clear and sort of upfront and everyone was talking about it. And, you know, why should policymakers of a certain age be dictating the policies for children who are going to have to live through a world that is completely different in now 30 years is what they're saying. Yeah, there's a, a lovely contrast there between all the, the Greta stuff and the PISA report. What's the difference? A different present world. That The OECD imagines a quite different world. It mm. imagines a world that hasn't actually changed very much for 20, 30 years. Yeah. No, I, I actually I disagree with Roger. Um, you can read that report and they are flagging the digital. They are flagging. Uh, they don't say much about it. Um, the, the idea that we need to come together, work together to understand each other, you know, not just within our communities, but more broadly and globally and so on. Um, but now here's the problem for let's say organizations like the OECD that see like a global institution it more or less has a one-size-fits-all and it's got to govern from a very long distance and one of the issues around something like you know living better together or something like that is that it puts on the table a very specific um, understanding of what would it mean to be a global citizen and and so on and and that takes a, a very singular form it's slightly at odds then it's going to be the assessor of the global competences for the uh, sdg 4.7 that is also then as part of the um, unesco's responsibility unesco's trying to you know open out some wider discussions around uh, culture for example um, thinks about does culture if we looked at liberty equality and fraternity could we see this popping up in similar ways in other countries however the problem here is that in fact it still uses the west as the benchmark okay liberty equality fraternity the french phrase and it's been there's some very recent work that it's put out uh, you know it says well we can recognize those similar ideas in anywhere from uh, you know, parts of Africa into the Latin American world and, and China, etc. But that's still, that's still not an open-minded understanding of different worldviews, in my view. And if there's anything that we should, in the education research world, be kind of working with, it would be to try and open out a wider understanding of the possibilities uh, for education um, as simply not just um, kind of a Western-only construction. Maybe that's part of the problem, you know, because the idea of progress and development and its forward movement. We had a lovely paper come out in our journal um, looking um, at a Noah Lissatoy who is looking at a Peruvian um, thinker. And could that be the basis for a different way of thinking about our relationship to each other and the world of nature, not mm. an accumulation forward-driven model, but one that maybe sits with nature. And so you can see there are resources in the rest of the parts of the world, deeply culturally anchored, that might be resources that would be incredibly important to think our way forward into a different kind of future. Mm. It does seem like future is an issue that has come up in 2019 and debates over it, you know, what is this future that we are perhaps moving towards or into? And 
obviously not everyone agrees on what that looks like. I think there are a lot of different answers because there's a lot of different we's this, distinctly. It's, it's so interesting, again, having just read the OECD report, the gap between that and the other things we're suggesting. And I, and I think that this will extend. Formal education uh, uh, for everybody is actually losing ground and will be acceleratedly losing ground to uh, social media. It is not the only institution anymore. There is an alternative institution and that alternative is an alternative institution to lots of others, like Mm. news. So there's fake educational news. Right, so this is going to be a major challenge going forward for formal education, I would imagine, and what states end up doing in their formal education sector. Yeah, and especially in, probably, in its measurement, because you're going to be able to learn on social media and get diplomas, like (laughs) we saw with um, MOOCs. Yeah. Uh, Well, there is actually a language that goes with all of this. They're called nano-credentials, and the idea that you could actually get, uh, let's say, a massive open online uh, course that you, you took... Um, so the, the blockchain, for example, is being put up as the uh, possible kind of encrypting passport so that you could have your learning credentials being logged on via blockchain. Right. And some universities are, uh, are playing around with this. I guess that takes us to an interesting research agenda for education and, uh, you know, thinking, um, I, was, I was thinking about the Abidjan principles that um, are an effort to get um, the principles all established for you know, private sector actors uh, or private actors in the education world along with states and, and so on. But I do wonder about um, whether those principles would actually be sufficiently able to grasp the quite complex ways in which venture capital money has come into you know, funding um, and extracting value on all different kinds of platforms mm-hmm. that, let's say, a university or a school sits. You know? yeah. um, so and, and we don't see them. I mean, I think we just think in older styled ways about you know, where's the commercial interests. Mm. And, but huge amounts of venture capital money has flow, flowed into these infrastructures uh, that right. basically structure the possibilities of what to think or who comes together and, and so on. And, and that's quite an imp- important research agenda going forward. I, I agree. I mean, when I read those Abidjan principles on you know regulating the private sector in education from a human rights point of view, for me, it's, they, it's a very black and white reading of what public and private is. And they don't have a nuanced understanding of how private interests can actually be, you know, very diverse. And it's not just a private school. And, you know, some of the work I've done years ago on private tutoring, for instance, doesn't fit within these principles in any meaningful way. And so I just wonder what their utility will be for governments that are obviously facing very different challenges on the ground. I completely agree. And I think what we have to be completely aware of is, you know, bottom line interests. Okay, so if you're um, a commercial enterprise corporation um, and you're chasing the bottom line, it seems to me that that sets up a particular set of logics that um, undermine a series of things, um, undermine, you know, 
let's say your infrastructures because you're always looking to shave off the edges. Your your human called your teachers actually, you know, looking to pay them less. All those kinds of uh, things. So I I think we'd be better off uh, in this public private debate naming. Um, the bit of the private that is problematic, and it's about commercial interests, significant mm. commercial interests. So let's look ahead now. You know, 2020 is just around the corner. By the time this show airs next week, we in Britain might have a new prime minister or the same prime minister. We don't know what will happen. And a few weeks later, we will be entering 2020. What are you looking forward to in 2020? Going forward into... 2020. I guess I do take some heart in uh, the the other end of that continuum. You know, the populism here, but a politicisation, and we Rogers called it populism. You know, often popular people working on populism aren't including those kinds of groups um, because they're not doing it in quite the same way. Uh, but. We could call it a progressive populism, as uh, Moof and others want to talk about it. Nancy Fraser has also talked about, uh, well, in fact, that they're trying to think of what would a progressive populism begin to uh, look like. But as educators, we've got to really begin to think of perhaps thinking in much more systematic ways about how we might unpick what I think's become a very unhealthy education system. You know, an excess of competition, um, the consequences of that shouldn't surprise me. You know, and it's almost a kind of epidemic of, um, un, you know, well-being that actually people are distinctly unwell. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. You know, austerity, anxiety about, you know, being responsible for yourself, getting ahead, um, more challenged material conditions. So can we think about maybe setting some agendas through our journals, which is one of the things that our journals should be trying to do that really go off in the direction that Roger's suggesting, not just a, when we're thinking about sustainability and so on. Can we actually be, you know, pushing for some deeper conversations that are absolutely engaged with uh, our biosphere, our ecology, um, the conditions for cap- uh, this particular kind of um, market capitalism to, to, to flourish. Could we be thinking actually now about the way we organise our education systems with kind of perhaps more radical experiments to do with um, you know, coming back to Dewey, you know, how could we use our schools as laboratories for creating different kinds of societies? Now that means that we're going to have to be really brave um, along with people who feel as if they have to constantly be open to scrutiny because of Ofsted inspections and these kinds of things. Um, it's going to take a big and very concerted effort to unpick what we've got at the current time. But I think that's the responsibility of academics um, like myself and yourself and Roger um, through the journal, through the platforms that we have access to. In terms of the journal, it, w- it would be nice to see uh, some shift in, in the kind of uh, genres we get which tend to be, I mean, it's, it's inevitable they're going to be, but they tend to be reports on research. They tend to be, to some degree, PhD chapters. And we, um, we don't have a way. But what bothers me is 
so many uh, submissions uh, have practically no theoretical content at all. Mm. I'm not as um, I've just read a few pessimistic yet, but actually, over this last year, um, our journal did carry some really interesting, you know, um, yeah. rereadings, um, fallism. Um, decolonizing and and so on and so that was wonderful to see um and so perhaps i'm just going to say i i feel that the the we can set agendas and um and that we should be absolutely encouraging some imaginative um you know special issue calls so uh, that's maybe where we would want to and, and pushing for more theory right i mean it seems like that is a critique of the broader education field where it's, you know, I often find as well that there's a limited use of theory, just the application of theory, but also the generation of new theories, extending theories in new directions. And these are, I think, intellectually, this is, you know, perhaps where we should be going. I mean, if I could use that word, should. But Roger, any other things are you thinking about in terms of uh, the next decade? I, th- I think one thing we can, we, we can think about, I don't know if we can do anything about it, is, is uh, to try to slightly finesse the idea of globalisation. Because the way it's used now, it is used as, in a sense as globalisation, everything. But it's also used as a synonym for world. It's also used as a synonym for planetary. And these things have to be distinguished. They're not the same. Uh, and it's very difficult to write a, 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 report, a response, oh, no, not a response, a report on some of this because it would take you forever. But it would be a failure, I think, in, in uh, you mentioned comparative education, that for some remains a model. And I do, I, you know, unfortunately, as far as we're concerned, that's why we. One of the reasons we wanted to set the journal up because we didn't want to be like them. Uh, because you couldn't get that. And as Susan says, there's some fantastic stuff we get mm. that you wouldn't get anywhere else. But sometimes there's stuff that it's actually very difficult not to accept, mm. but um, very easy not to be excited by. So I know that the next year also marks a slightly new beginning for the journal. So it's, it's an announcement I think you want to make on the show. So I'm going to turn it over to the two of you to, to make uh, the announcement of a big change that's going to happen at the journal. So the announcement is that um, Roger, being the founding co-editor along with me of the journal, Globalisation Societies and Education, I think we've been going around 17 years, which is quite an achievement. So Roger is going to stand down from being the co-editor along with me and Mario Novelli is going to come forward. He's going to remain very active. Um, I have no doubt that in fact I'll be um, putting work his way in terms of finding reviewers and this, that and the other. But I just want to say it's been, as a colleague of Roger's, been just a, a great pleasure to work with Roger. But it's also a, a chance for to bring a new generation through um, yeah. Mario Novelli, who's at the University of Sussex, um, slightly different area, um, kind of political economy of development and so on. But I think that, and what we are planning to do is to also bring a, a, a bunch of new like young scholars and so on onto the, as consulting editors and so on. Um, because I think it's, it's time also to, you know, use that energy to drive forward um, 
and you know the next decade of the to journal u- to use it better than we have used it so far given that the editorial board now is the same as the editorial board was in volume one number one well i must say as a younger scholar it is really quite amazing for the two of you to recognize um, those generational issues and but also to say thank you for all the work that you've done pioneering this journal and moving it forward over, I can't believe it's 17 years. Um, it's one of the main journals in the field, and so you should be very proud of what you've created, and it's very exciting to think about the next phase here and the next decade to come. So from everyone that's a reader of the Globalization Societies in Education, thank you, Roger, for all of your work and your editing. And like Susan says, you're not yet allowed to retire just quite yet. You're going to be working a little bit here and there. Is it worth me just saying something how it started? Sure. It started in a taxi ride from Washington Airport to the uh, hotel with um, Graham Hobbs, who we I knew before from Falmer, as it was then. And I said, what about a new journal? And he, he said, oh yeah, I'll take it to them. He came back very quickly. He said, I've put this idea up to my boss and he wants to start it straight away. He said his, his son has just started learning about globalization at school, so he thinks it would be, it would be a winner. Well, it certainly was. So Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, thank you so much for joining again to, to end the year and to think ahead about next year. Happy holidays, happy new year, and I look forward to seeing you sometime in the new year. So thank you again. Thanks so much, Will. Thanks thank you. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge. And Roger Dale is Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Bristol. Fresh Ed is going on holiday for the next few weeks. We'll return next year with new shows. So I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and thank you again for all of your support. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.